Peter writes this to testify of the faith that we have and confirm God's people in the faith. That is his purpose um, in writing this. If you go to the end of the book, chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. So his, his purpose in this was to confirm God's people in the faith and to testify of that faith that was once delivered. Peter has a concern for God's people in troublesome times. And that's one of the, the themes of this book, to remind God's people in troublesome times that we are saved by God's grace and what he has prepared for us and that we just keep on walking in this world, trusting in him. Robert Leeton said this is an excellent epistle, or this excellent epistle is brief and yet very clear summary of both the consolation and instructions necessary for the encouragement and direction of a Christian on his journey to heaven. It elevates our thoughts and our desires to that happiness. It strengthens us against all opposition along the way of corruption within and temptations and afflictions from without. And as you read this, um, it's not um, like Paul's epistles where he builds an argument he, and, and chapter 1 builds, or chapter 2 builds from chapter 1, but he, Peter lays out truths and applies these truths uh, to us in our life. And it's a very plain yet comforting epistle. One man said the object of Paul, or Peter rather, in this epistle is to plainly confirm the disciples in the faith, in their profession, in their obedience to the gospel, to deepen their conviction that the source of happiness and the foundation of the kingdom of God were contained in the faith of the Redeemer, that this doctrine was the everlasting, unchangeable word of God, and that therefore they ought to aim at appropriating with childlike simplicity that they might continually advance towards the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. And so Peter gives us doctrine, then he'll give us the application. And he'll, he'll tell us how to live and tell us how we ought to live and tell us how we ought to, to live in this world not to, you know, to, to change the world as, as culture warriors, but how to live in a world that is opposed against us and how to live in a world that is attacking us. And so this is a very helpful book I, for, for all of God's people. So the first thing we find here is Peter writes to the strangers scattered throughout the world, the scattered strangers. That would be a good uh, title for the message, I guess, The Scattered Strangers. So the Apostle Peter here writes to these scattered strangers. An apostle um, is one that's sent by another, and, and, Paul, and Peter was called of Jesus Christ, of course, and then ordained to be an apostle. And so we've been looking in John, and we just saw where Jesus prayed that the Holy Spirit would come and, 
and brings remembrance to things that he taught them and empower them to preach. And, and you see Peter, in particular, in the book of Acts, how um, the Holy Spirit gave him strength and power and courage and boldness to accomplish the mission that the Lord had uh, laid out for him. Um, Peter, an eyewitness from the very beginning of the Lord's ministry, was called and chosen by Christ himself to first being a, a disciple and a follower and one of his close companions and then an apostle and then set in the church and empowered by uh, wonderful, miraculous sign gifts, the signs of the apostles, as, as uh, Paul called them in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And so Peter had a particular authority that no one has today or or and just a, the handful of apostles had during this time to not only instruct a church, but to instruct the churches. And so Peter writes not just to one particular local congregation, but he writes uh, to the people of God. Um, he writes the churches spread all over the place with apostolic authority, speaking as one, speaking for God moved along and carried along by the Holy Spirit, just like the prophets of old. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is speaking to these scattered saints the words of God. He is telling these scattered pilgrims what God would have for them. And so it's flavored with, with the, the tone and the tenor of Peter, but this is God's word. And this is God's word not only for these people, but for us um, here tonight as well. Peter now, at this time, was an old man. And it would take a long time to survey Peter's life. As I was thinking about this, I, I thought how much information we have about Peter. Some of the apostles we don't know hardly anything about other than their name. But here, well, with Peter, we, we certainly know a lot about him. We see him. Um, as he was first called and we see his ups and his downs in um, the Gospels uh, we see what a change the Lord makes in his life um, from the end of the Gospels to the beginning of the book of Acts um, and it would take a long time to survey Peter's uh, ups and his downs the, his presumptuous sometimes his, but his boldness his, his love but uh, you know, sometimes his mouth would, would get ahead of his, of his thoughts. The scripture records all these things, his ups and his downs, his, his trials and his failures. But now we see him at the end of his life. And this letter, I believe, has the tone of a caring shepherd who himself has endured much and suffered much and suffered long. But in his last days is a joyful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And looking back on a long life of trials and, and tribulations and, and struggles, Peter now looks to the people of God who are also experiencing such trials and, and hardships by following Christ. And he looks to do as God had called him to do and encourage them in the faith. We're looking at one here who's writing this epistle who has lived the Christian life, who has lived in 
in what we might think of uh, following close to the Lord and, and has felt the bitter pains of failure. We're not talking about one who has exalted into sinless perfection here. We're talking about one who had failed and failed publicly and failed terribly in the denial of Christ and 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 there at the fire denying that he even knew him there at, 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 right uh, before Christ was crucified. And we see some of his presumption and some of his um, you know, Lord, I'll never deny thee, or Lord, that I won't let anybody take your life. And, and where Jesus has to rebuke him and, and set him aside, even to where Paul rebukes him in the book of Galatians. Uh, not so much for, uh, you know, I, I think it's more probably of uh, I, I don't think Peter believed the false gospel, but I think he was unwise in what he was doing there in Galatians, and, and Paul had to correct him. But but even then, he just doesn't he doesn't go away. He doesn't hide away. He doesn't get angry at, at Paul as as he even uh, quotes uh, and talks about Paul in his epistles. We see a humble servant of God who endures to the end. He perseveres in his in his life. Persevere in the faith, serving the one whom he loves. And so here's a man who has endured, who has failed, who has been blessed of the Lord in his life, and he's encouraging us to follow the Lord likewise. So we're not listening to a man who's never tripped or stumbled or uh, a man that, that has, has it all together and always has had it all together. But a former fisherman who, by God's grace, was called unto salvation and then service for the Lord. He didn't arrive at this faith through um, you know, his intellectual prowess, but a fisherman who was called of God to follow him. And by God's grace, he, he continues to do so. And now, with, with all that he has left for the rest of his life, he called God's people to look to Christ. This is the tone of a man. This is, letter is written as the tone of a man who took seriously his job to feed God's people. In John 21, the Lord Jesus Christ commissions Peter. So Peter has fallen and the Lord has restored him. So he, he, has den he denied the Lord. And... At this time, the Lord restores him and, and puts him back into service. And it says, John 21, 15, So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest where thou wouldest. When thou shalt be old, I shall stretch forth thy hands 
and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. And so he's, he spake this, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. So the Lord tells him how he's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to be put to death uh, for the service of God. And the Lord says, feed my sheep. Follow me. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. This is the job that I give to you, Peter. This is the job, the task that I provide that you feed my sheep. And so, I believe for the rest of Peter's life that he does what the Lord commands him to do. He loves Jesus. And so how does he show his love for Jesus? How does Jesus say to Peter, do you love me? Yes. Well, how do you, how do you show your love for me, Peter? Feed the people of God. Feed them doctrine. Feed them truth about me. And so that's what Peter does. And that's what we have in this text. So when we come to 1 Peter, we, we should remember that, 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 that this is a man who, coming to the end of his life, is writing to suffering Christians, these lambs of God, these sheep of God, who suffer and are under great trials and hardships, under a wicked government, persecuted for their faith in Christ, He's going to feed them the truth and feed them doctrine and feed them um, uh, the, the encouraging and comforting uh, and sometimes convicting words of the Lord. Albert Barnes said, There is therefore scarcely any part of the New Testament where the ripe and mellow Christian will find more that is adapted to his mature feelings or to which he will more naturally turn. Almost all that he has written is of universal applicability to Christians and may be read with as much interest and profit now by us as the people to whom this, his epistles were addressed. Now there's, there's very little history and there's very little um, um, knowledge that you have to bring into it, I, I guess as far as the Jewish knowledge but, but just, just the whole thing is, is, is universally applicable to us as God's people. And um, and so it is a blessed epistle. It's a blessed letter. He writes these to the scattered strangers, or the dispersed, as it is translated in John seven thirty five. And these um, dispersed, I think, are um, probably Jews who had to leave their homeland. And so I believe that these were probably Jewish Christians who had been scattered by persecution um, from their homelands. They were displaced. And now they, they can no longer live in Jerusalem and in Judea, Israel. They, they can no longer live in their homeland. Now they're in Galatia and Asia and, and, and just all over, the, all over the place, driven out, outcasts. People who were without home in the world. That, that would be a, 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 hard, a hardship that would just be hard to get over, wouldn't it? To, to, to live in a, a country that 
that you love, a land with your family, a land with that, that, that you know. And you're not leaving because you want to. You're not leaving because even that you got a better job, but, but you were driven out of the place, forced out to where you could um, no longer reside there. And why? Not for some evil thing, not for some wicked thing, but for the love of Jesus Christ. The King of Israel, whom you love and worship, um, is the cause that you are driven out of your homeland. It could be all Christians persecuted and driven out from homes, but nonetheless, these were the scattered strangers or, or scattered pilgrims, the dispersed throughout, throughout the region. He's not preaching to a victorious militant group of culture warriors, but scattered pilgrims. Strangers, aliens, to um, in a land that was not theirs. They were not; they were in the world, but they were not of the world. These uh, strangers are aliens, foreigners, people who who are not in their home country, and so they were doubly strangers. They. They were not. They were aliens in the country that they were in. They were not natives of Galatia and, and Asia, but they were dispersed. They were put out um, to those places. But they are also strangers in the sense that God had called them out of this world, and this world was no longer their home. And so they were, um, they were part of a group of people who had different views and different values and different beliefs. Uh, different motives for living, different motives for life, different uh, code of morality, a, get, a diff, different God. In a, very, uh, in, in a world that was very antagonistic against them. So that's, that's who he's writing to. There's a lot of going on in this book. Main themes of faith and obedience to God and patience and endurance. Um, to, to continue on and persevere in the faith. Lighton said that uh, Peter wants to establish them in believing, to direct them in doing, and comfort them in suffering. And that's a pretty good summary of the book. To establish them in believing, direct them in doing, and comfort them in suffering. To, to ground us in what we believe, and to settle us in these... Um, these basic yet fundamental truths of, of our faith direct us in how to live in this world and then comfort us in uh, the necessary suffering that will arise. He's exhorting us, as he said in 1 Peter 5.12. He's pushing us on. He's encouraging us. Don't give in. Don't quit. Don't lie down. Keep trusting in the Lord exhorting us to continue to, to put our faith and our hope and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and not to, to waver from that faith, but to, to cling to the, to the truth of the Lord Jesus. And he testifies, as it says in chapter 5, verse 12, that this is the true grace of God wherein we stand. He testifies of God's grace. Where do we stand? Now he's going to tell us 
how we have to obey. He's going to tell us how we are to live. But where is it we stand? Where is it that we have the foundation of our, our hope, the foundation of, of who we are and, and our, our souls? Well, it is the true grace of God, God's saving grace in Christ Jesus the Lord. That's where we stand. And so whenever we have trials, where do we stand? We stand in the grace of God. When we are to, to gird up the loins of our mind and be sober, where do we stand? On the true grace of God. Where we stand when we are um, under wicked governors or wicked masters. It starts in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Where do we stand? When we are attacked by the devil who, who sneaks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, where do we stand? We stand in the true grace of God. So he encourages us and testifies of God's grace. So he writes to the, the scattered strangers, then he provides them some doctrinal comfort. In verse number two, he says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, through sanctification in the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So how does Peter begin his address um, to comfort and encourage? Well, he begins with doctrine. Doctrine is highly practical, especially when we apply this truth um, of the doctrine of our salvation. It is highly practical in that it is assuring us, it is comforting us, and it is God-honoring. Election is a highly practical doctrine when we consider, especially considering the troubles and the trials and our own failures and our own sinfulness, that we can come and, and consider God's work in our salvation. Notice in verse number 2, it's the foreknowledge of God, sanctification in the Spirit, and you have the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. We have a, the, the, Trinitarian, the Trinity here in verse number 2 um, in, in our salvation. We see God's covenant of redemption here for us. That God is for His people. That God the Father has chosen us. That God the Spirit has sanctified us and applied the work of redemption to us. And that we have um, salvation through the blood of Christ. This is a comforting doctrine for, for those who may be struggling, for those who are enduring trials, to know that our salvation is, um, is not through the work of our hands, that we are chosen unto the Father with a purpose, and that it is the Spirit who sanctifies and, and is Christ who cleanses us. And so he begins comforting and encouraging these people with doctrine, the truth of God and um, our salvation. These scattered strangers were a chosen people. And Peter writes to encourage the faith of these believers who had been set to flight by persecution, scattered in this world but loved and chosen by the Father. 
more and more as, as time goes on, this world gets darker and, and things get uh, more bleak. And as the, the God of this world sort of shows his teeth against uh, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, we see uh, Jesus' words proven true and true that those those who follow him will be hated by those who hate him. This world is not the friend of Jesus. This world hates Jesus. This world hates his ways and his laws and his holiness. And those who follow with Jesus um, will follow in the wake of the one that they hate. Peter is writing to pilgrims, to sojourners, to, to aliens, Christians who are in the world but not of the world, who face persecution and, and, and suffering and hardships. But he reminds them right off the bat that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. These scattered strangers who are, who are the minority in the world find help and comfort in the community of Christians in the church and as they gather together they are reminded that they are chosen by the Father elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father not chosen for their goodness or chosen for their, their power or their influence not chosen because they can make a big impact in the world but chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father they are loved by their Father. They are known by their Father. And they are chosen out of this world, but cared for and provided for by their Father, according to God's purpose. And so if we can just remember these truths that, yes, we may have great trials and suffer great, greatly, but we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God has not forgotten us. God has not forsaken us. He has ordained our very steps. And we can, we can look at this and know that the Lord is with us. And be reminded that God is with us. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, we are elect unto salvation. But does that mean that God doesn't know what's happening to us? That God doesn't know... The, the trials that we face? Well, of course not. He has ordained those for our good. But let us remember that, that it comes from the hand of a loving Father, one who loves His people and has called us for the purpose that we might be before Him, that we may be sanctified. That, that is His purpose, that we would be with Him, chosen out of the world, called to follow Christ, through the sanctification of the Spirit. And so now we see the Spirit's work in this, in our salvation. Uh, sanctification is to be consecrated, or set apart, dedicated to, for God's use. Now sanctification is a work of God's grace. If, they were going to, if, if something was sanctified in the temple, it was set apart for the use of God. So 
you have a you have the the a bowl or you the utensil there in the temple. It was set apart. It wasn't the, those particular properties that made up that utensil utensil or that piece of furniture or that fabric was came and floated down from heaven and it was of a different type of material than just earthly material. You can read in the Old Testament where the gold and the material came from. You can read where the wood came from, the logs came from. Some of the stuff Solomon built didn't even come from Israel. So it wasn't that it was the, the material itself had some kind of special property in it, but it was set apart for this particular use. Now God sanctifies us. God sets us apart for his use. And it is the work of God in us that is the sanctification. Notice it says through sanctification of the Spirit. So our sanctification is the work of God in us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we are sanctified. Our sanctification is of the Spirit. It is God working in us. It is not us working by ourselves. It is not us striving so we can be sanctified, but God sanctifies us. And God um, God does this work in us. So if we look in um, Titus chapter number 2, verse 13, Says, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, let me back up verse 11. For the grace of God. So that's how he starts it. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. So it's God's grace that brings salvation teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. So it begins with the grace of God. And the grace of God teaches us how we ought to live. And what are we looking at? We are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So it is the Lord who saves us by his grace. It is the Lord who gave himself for us. It is the Lord who redeems us and the Lord who purifies us unto himself. Verse 5 of chapter 3 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy as he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So God has called us to good works. God has called us for good works. We are his workmanship for good works. But the good works are from God. All of the work of the Spirit in us, our obedience, our putting off of sin, our denying ourselves and living in godliness, is the work of the Spirit of God. 
That is God's work of sanctification in us. So our sanctification is a fruit of our salvation. It is not the cause of our salvation. So our repentance and our obedience is the fruit of God's Spirit in us. It is the work of of God through Christ Jesus in us that sanctifies us. God's people will be sanctified, and it will be by the work of grace and the Spirit. And so, this sanct- we are sanctified unto the, the obedience or belief in the truth, submission to Christ. So, God's people do obey through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. So it is the work of the Spirit. And what's the Spirit doing in us? The Spirit sanctifies us. And then what is the result of the sanctifying work of the Spirit? Well, it's unto obedience. So it's easy to get sanctification turned around backwards and say sanctification is obedience unto the work of the Spirit, but no, it's, it's, we are sanctified of the Spirit unto obedience, right? So the Spirit sanctifies us, and the result, the fruit of the Spirit's work, is our obedience unto the Lord. And so this brings us um, assurance, not in ourselves and not of our obedience, but the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. So, the sprink, what's the sprinkling of the blood of Christ do? Well, we have Christ for pardon. So we have Christ for power and sanctification and Christ for pardon in the sprinkling of his blood. We've seen Rock of Ages Clef for me, he what what did he say? Be uh, of sin, the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. Unto uh, sanctification, unto obedience, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are we are saved by God's wrath. The sprinkling of the blood um, cleanses us from sin. We are pardoned. We are justified, and the Spirit applies the work of Christ, blood for cleansing of our sins, blood for pardon of our guilt, and blood for justification and uh, applied to us that we have the righteousness of Christ and are declared innocent in the sight of God. We obey not to be saved, but because we are. We are saved and cleansed and pardoned and set apart by God, foreordained and elect according uh, to the foreknowledge of God, set apart by the Spirit, set apart for the Master's use by the Spirit, given life in the Spirit, unto obedience. Because that's what God wants from us. And so He provides what we need. We we don't have what it takes of ourself and of our own power. And so God tells us what He wants, and then God provides us the means to to carry that out. He, He gives us the grace. He works that that fruit in us, or out of us, rather. Sanctification is a gospel promise. And our good works flow out of God's work in us. And so it is a promise. 
Sanctification is, our, is a promise of God through the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Peter speaking here who so publicly failed and was restored to his office by the grace and mercy of Christ that calls us to obey. It's hard. It would be hard if you're a legalist or a legal-minded person to stand up and just scold and tell everybody how bad they are and you got to live better like like me, but in the back of your mind, knowing that well, you're just as guilty as as they are, probably more so. So it's quite a different story to be to be able to say, "I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. I have failed. I have I have missed the mark. But God has saved us and cleansed us and pardoned us." And justified us. And we, we cling to his promises in the gospel. And he has called us to, to live and to obey. And to, but he has empowered us to do so. And that we can press on by God's grace. And press on and continue on. Not to have a, a, the necessity of perfect obedience. To, to earn God's love or favor, but because God has loved us and, and chosen us and called us and sanctified us and, and cleansed us and pardoned us, we can go forward and we can serve Him without fear of, of, of condemnation and without the burden of guilt and shame. So Peter is one who has experienced the grace of, of God and experienced His his cleansing and his pardon and his forgiveness and he calls God's people to follow likewise. And, and so it's so encouraging to, to think of Peter uh, here in, his, in this letter helping us along and, and pointing us to Christ and his work in us. And lastly, he, he, he prays for them to have grace and peace. I looked, um, I did a search on this phrase, grace and peace, over and over and over again in the epistles. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Grace and peace. It was, it was multiplied. They were already the objects of God's grace. John Brown says it's the equivalent to God loves you and has given you proofs of his love. Had he not loved you, would he have selected you? Would he have spiritually set you apart for himself? Would he have brought you to the obedience of truth? Would he have sprinkled you with the blood of Jesus? Well, may you have continued increasing and multiplied proofs that God loves you in the continuance and increase and multiplication of all heavenly and spiritual blessings. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Grace and salvation and grace in our lives and grace in our sanctification and grace in our pardon. Grace to you, scattered pilgrims. Grace to you, elect and loved of the Father. Grace to you who are sanctified by the Spirit. Grace to you who, um, who follow unto obedience. Grace to you who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Grace to you who are under trials and, and hardships and and persecution and, and temptations. Grace to you whose, whose job has fallen apart, as you see in chapter 3. Um, you know, he's talking about bad, or, or chapter 2 rather, submission to, 
to people who do us wrong, servants obeying bad masters, um, wives submission to unsaved husbands. It, it's it's uh, not life as you might want it to be. For grace to you. Grace to you under uh, the heavy hand of a government persecution. Grace to you. And peace be multiplied. That's what Peter prays. That's what God has for us. Grace and peace. Peace multiplied. Peace in tribulation. Peace in our trials. Peace as being strangers. Peace of being scattered. Peace in a world that has no peace. Peace in a world of war and fighting and conflict. Peace in a world uh, uh, that seems to be on fire. Peace be multiplied. God's people have grace in Christ. We have peace in Christ. And if we look to him, we'll find joy there. That's where we'll find peace, with Christ. That's where we'll find grace multiplied over and over again. The, the well of God's grace and peace never runs dry. And so that's my prayer for us tonight. Grace and peace. That we can leave this place with grace multiplied and peace multiplied in our hearts. That we can lay our heads down tonight and resting in the promises of God, and have peace in our souls, and peace in our minds, and peace in our hearts. Uh, not by looking out there, because you're not going to find it out there, but by looking to Christ. And remember what He's done for us. Remember the Father has chosen us, the Spirit has sanctified us, the Son has died for us. We have life, we have pardon, we have forgiveness, we are justified, we are free from condemnation. So We have every reason, every cause to have peace looking to him. And may God add the blessings of his word to save me in my prayer.